We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Gonna take it right the One question you have to ask about the famous 1950s, 1960s ad man, David Ogilvy, the greatest advertising man the world has ever seen. The first among the so-called madmen, as they were labelled in the recent TV series about the Madison Avenue advertising industry, is what was he up to spying on the British ambassador, his own boss in Washington, D.C.? Was David a double agent for the Nazis? That and many other questions will be answered in this program. In fact, I can guarantee you that by the time you get to the end of this program, you'll be curiously refreshed. If you want to know what that means, you're going to have to listen. William Stevenson, the man who ran the World War II British spy network in America called British Security Coordination, the man whose codename was Intrepid, hired the most extraordinary, eccentric and gifted Britons to work for him. They included Ian Fleming, the creator of James Bond, Roald Dahl, the author of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and James and the Giant Peach, the famous singer Noel Coward, and David Ogilvy, the man who became an advertising legend after World War II, one of the greatest madmen, the name coined by the series that started in 2007 and ran for seven seasons. David Ogilvy was not only one of the madmen, the advertising executives with magnificent offices on Madison Avenue, New York, he was to become the greatest of them all. When you employ extraordinary people, you get extraordinary things happening. David Ogilvy went onto the full-time payroll of British Security Coordination in 1942, working at the British Embassy in Washington, D.C., officially as a third secretary. An innocent-sounding title. A public servant? No more. Embassies are always the haunts of spooks, spies, and the British Embassy was no exception, even in a friendly country, a country that was Britain's most important ally. The head of an embassy is the ambassador. An ambassador represents his country in the country that the ambassador is assigned to. The ambassador in Washington at this time was a man who had had a very distinguished career, very distinguished indeed, Viscount Halifax. Halifax was an extraordinarily qualified man. He was an aristocrat. In his younger days, he'd been an extraordinary student at Eton and then Oxford University. Everything about him was extraordinary. Between World War I and World War II, He'd served as the Viceroy of India, the man in charge of the entire country for England. He'd negotiated brilliantly with Mahatma Gandhi, 
who was leading the passive resistance movement for the independence of India. In 1937, Halifax was invited to Germany by the head of the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe, Hermann Göring. Halifax was invited in his capacity as the master of the Middleton Hunt. Göring had a vast estate in East Prussia with plenty of game for hunting. Halifax's visit had been approved by the British government. Halifax met with Göring, Joseph Goebbels, the Minister for Propaganda, and Adolf Hitler himself. His meeting with Adolf Hitler took place at Hitler's mountain retreat at Berchtesgaden. In his autobiography, Halifax recorded his meeting with Hitler in the following terms. As I looked out of the car window on eye level, I saw in the middle of this swept path a pair of black trousered legs, finishing up in silk stockings and pumps. I assumed this was a footman who had come down to help me out of the car and up the steps, and was proceeding in a leisurely fashion to get myself out of the car, when I heard von Neurath or somebody throwing a hoarse whisper at my ear of, De Führer! De Führer! And then it dawned on me that the legs were not the legs of a footman, but of Hitler. A major and humiliating diplomatic incident was avoided because Halifax was about to hand Hitler his overcoat, having mistaken him for a butler. In his discussions with Hitler, although they were hard and difficult, there was a lot of agreement on points that would later become highly contentious. Halifax spoke of possible alterations in the European order, which might be destined to come about with the passage of time. Ignoring the reservations that Anthony Eden, the foreign affairs minister, had briefed him on before his visit, Halifax didn't object in principle to Hitler's designs on Austria, parts of Czechoslovakia and Poland. Halifax stressed that such changes, if they were to happen, would have to happen peacefully. Halifax later said about this meeting with Hitler, Nationalism and racialism is a powerful force, but I can't feel that it's either unnatural or immoral. I cannot myself doubt that these fellows are genuine haters of communism, etc. And I dare say, if we were in their position, we might feel the same. In February 1938, after serving in various positions in the cabinet of the British government, Halifax was made the Foreign Secretary by Neville Chamberlain, the new Prime Minister, in 1938. In the events after the German invasion of France, which was seen as the last catastrophic failure of Neville Chamberlain as Prime Minister of Great Britain, he resigned. Chamberlain thought that Halifax should become the new Prime Minister in his place, but Halifax declined. He was sitting in the House of Lords, and traditionally Prime Ministers had to be sitting in and answerable to the House of Commons. Halifax was also of the opinion that Churchill would make a better Prime Minister, or perhaps he felt that everything was going to turn into such a monumental disaster that he didn't want to be a part of it when England inevitably surrendered to the Germans. Halifax had also been closely linked 
to the terrible surrenders to Germany over Austria and the Sudetenland of Czechoslovakia, which he had already more or less given his blessing to. He was clearly not the man to lead England in the world where England had to stand up to and fight a major war with Hitler's Germany. Winston Churchill became the Prime Minister. Not long after the German invasion of France and the developing collapse of the French, Halifax clashed with Churchill, urging him to try to negotiate a peace settlement with Hitler, using Benito Mussolini as an intermediary. At that time, Italy hadn't yet declared war. The British expeditionary force was trapped with its back to the English Channel, with no escape seeming possible. Only a madman would have fought on, well, Winston Churchill, and thank God he did. In December 1940, the British ambassador in Washington died suddenly. It was the perfect opening for Churchill to get rid of Halifax. It's common practice in politics to reward faithful party members with diplomatic posts, and Washington, D.C. was the choicest posting. Halifax gladly accepted the appointment and packed his bags. His long career of public service and the issues surrounding his involvement in trying to appease Hitler and even suggesting that England surrender obviously made it attractive for Halifax to get as far away from Churchill and England as possible. He accepted the post. He was to be responsible for all purely diplomatic actions, but he was to have no role in military matters. That role would go to another man Churchill had clashed with, Sir John Dill, who proved to be an inspired choice. For the supercharged irregulars, as the dynamic young men working for the man called Intrepid liked to call themselves after the amateurs who occasionally helped Sherlock Holmes were called, Halifax was not an inspiring man to be working for. David Ogilvy found the British Embassy in Washington a singularly ineffective organisation. The Foreign Office at this time lived incredibly by the unofficial slogan, Above all, no zeal. David was confident that they lived up to that. David found Halifax to be curiously lazy. He said that Halifax, as the ambassador in England's most important ally of the war, found time every afternoon to take a leisurely stroll with his wife and Dachshund. But the only time he could find to meet with the heads of the various British missions in Washington was once every two weeks, and then for no longer than one and a quarter hours. Halifax couldn't be bothered to meet with anyone below the rank of a minister, and he rarely set eyes on any of the 50 members of his diplomatic staff. Halifax's laziness extended to reporting back very little information to London from the American officials he did meet with in the embassy. David was infuriated by this and wasn't prepared just to let it pass. So he installed a microphone in Halifax's office and recorded everything said there. He bugged his boss's office. Then he had what was said transcribed and the transcript sent to London. He later recalled, needless to say, this was considered ungentlemanly. 
Its attitude was curiously refreshing, though, and I'll talk more about another of David's brilliant advertising campaigns next. I don't think there's any episode of Mad Men where one of the advertising guys isn't drinking spirits. That was certainly a hallmark of the Madison Avenue Mad Men advertising scene. One of David Ogilvy's less quoted saying was, People are more productive when they drink. I find if I drink two or three brandies, I am better able to write. And so it seemed natural that Schweppes would approach David's advertising agency to help them market their product in the United States. The first encounter with Schweppes' top executive was definitely a crash and burn for David. David, in his must-have book, Confessions of an Advertising Man, tells about that first meeting with Sir Frederick Hooper of Schweppes. The traditional advertising method in those days was to present the images that the agency was proposing for the client to look at and hopefully admire. David said it was like selecting pictures to be included in an art exhibition. David was more reality-grounded than that, and from his days with Gallup, he presented a marketing plan backed up with statistical research. Sir Frederick quickly bored with David's presentation, especially when he reached the statistics which contradicted Sir Frederick's strongly held but wrong beliefs that such things were unnecessary. Luckily, David then had to liaise with the man who was going to be the president of Schweppes USA, Commander Edward Whitehead. The commander had been an actual Royal Navy commander serving in the South Pacific in World War II. It seems that the former commander was a man with a considerable ego and vanity. Janet Conant, in her book Irregulars, about the amazing men recruited by William Stevenson, the man called intrepid, to spy on Germany, America and many Latin American countries, said that the bearded, stiff, upper-back Englishman, the commander, was a living, breathing example of the sort of priggish foreign office type who had inhabited the British Embassy in Washington and who had proved to be more annoying and obstructionist than helping the cause, as David thought they should be doing. So it seems that David had the chance to take his revenge on that type and make fun of them, while at the same time promoting his client's product. David's original idea for the advertising campaign was to do the usual thing and employ a professional model to play the role of the bearded upper-class English aristocrat who David saw as essential to sell Schweppes tonic water into the American market. The everyday image of the commander, though, usually with a pipe stuck in the corner of his mouth and sometimes carrying an umbrella, was exactly the image that David needed. The commander's vanity meant that he didn't hesitate when invited to be the model for his own company's advertising campaign. David needed a slogan to go with the campaign and he picked a doozy of a counterintuitive one. In the ads, the commander would describe Schweppes tonic water as curiously refreshing. The image of the commander as somebody worldly, rich and mysterious was captured, for example, in the advertising campaign that was known by the name, was it Paris? Joan Alexander played the woman, beautiful, sophisticated, 
whose face was never seen, only a view from behind her or a partial view, but who the commander was always talking to and trying to remember where he last met her. Now wait, don't tell me. Was it Hong Kong? Beirut? Cairo, perhaps? The Was It Paris campaign was successful through the whole of the 1960s. In just five years after David had delivered his badly received first pitch to Sir Frederick Hooper, he was invited by him to speak at an advertising convention which he was presiding over, a generous gesture which conveyed something of an apology for his previous treatment of David. Sir Frederick himself suggested an appropriate topic for David to talk on, harking back to Sir Frederick's rebuff of David's advice. The topic, in the end, clients are grateful to advertising agents who tell them the truth. This was an approach that the fictional Don Draper, the creative advertising genius in Mad Men, always told his employees and clients, having stolen it from David. This speaking invitation came on the back of Schweppes' sales in the United States from David's advertising campaign, having increased by 517%. As a result of this advertising campaign, the commander was the second most recognised British face in the United States after Winston Churchill, who was a staggeringly well-known face from his role of wartime leader of Britain, having visited America many times during the war. There was a final and unexpected postscript to these ads for Schweppes. One of the ads used on billboards had the commander with both arms outstretched and held up, with a bottle of Schweppes tonic water in one hand and a bottle of Schweppes bitter lemon in the other. David received a letter from the pastor of an Ethiopian Baptist church in California, the letter read, I am the head of a small church group which is spreading the Lord's word on the highways of California. We use a lot of poster advertising and run into many problems due to high art costs. I saw the poster for Schweppes, the one with the bearded man who has his arms stretched out. What I would like to know is, can you send that photograph along to me when you are done with it? We would have Jesus Saves printed on it and put it up on the highways of California, spreading the Lord's word. David said that if his client's face could become identified with the Son of God, Schweppes would never have to spend another penny on advertising, and the whole Baptist world would be converted to Schweppes. But he feared losing his commissions, he jibed, and was so persuaded to decline the pastor's request. There was also a whole battery of other legal problems about the copyright, etc., that would have stopped such a campaign. So let me sum up David's contribution to our modern world. By the end of the war, William Stevenson, a very sharp operator and head of British intelligence operations in the United States, assessed David as a superior talent in the field of covert operations. Stevenson, on another separate occasion, said of David's performance in Washington that he had keen analytical powers and a special aptitude for handling problems of extreme delicacy. He was not only a good intelligence officer, but a brilliant one. 
After the war ended and before he returned to advertising, David struck out in a totally unexpected direction. He bought a farm in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and lived among the Amish, the traditional Christian community that shuns all modern technology. David enjoyed this serenity and peacefulness, but he said he had to give that life up because he wasn't much of a farmer. I can't help but think that for someone who had spent his whole life in the cut and thrust of selling in one way or another, and after being a spy, that farming with the Amish would have been frightfully dull and boring. So it was in 1949 that David contacted his brother in England and suggested that he could open up a branch of their agency in New York. They did, and it was called Ogilvy, Benson and Mather. David had just $6,000 in his bank account at the time. The guru in the London advertising agency was the man who had pioneered advertising agencies in Britain, Bobby Bevan. David admitted being in awe of him, but said that Bevan never took any notice of him. David later won the Dove Soap account and took it to being the best-selling soap brand in the United States. In 1962, Time magazine called David the most sought-after advertising wizard in today's advertising industry. David retired in 1973 and moved to Chateau de Tufou, his estate in France. He continued consulting with his old agency. This resulted in a massive increase in mail pouring through the local post office in the town of Bonn. Because of that the post office had to be reclassified and upgraded so that it could handle the volume of mail that earned the local postmaster there a promotion and a pay rise. In 1989, David's advertising agency was taken over by an English group called WPP for $864 million in a hostile takeover. Just how hostile the takeover was was illustrated when the founder of WPP, Sir Martin Sorrell, described David as an odious little shit. Relations between the two improved over the following years. WPP became the largest marketing communication firm in the world, and David served for three years as a non-executive chairman. A year after Sorrell had called David an odious little shit, David was quoted as saying of him, when he tried to take over our company, I would have liked to have killed him, but it was not legal. I wish I had known him 40 years ago. I like him enormously now. David sent a letter of apology to Sorrell over his earlier bad behaviour, which Sorrell had framed and mounted on his office wall. It was said to be the only apology that David offered in his adult life. David passed away on 21 July 1999, Thanks for joining me, Paul, in the Danger Zone.